Hi, friends. Hello, should I delete that, listeners? We still have some tickets left for our live tour and we would absolutely love to see you there. On Thursday, the 23rd of May, we will be performing in the London Islington Assembly Hall. On Monday, the 27th of May, we will be in Salford. On Tuesday, the 28th of May, we'll be in Glasgow. Sunday, the 2nd of June, Birmingham. Monday, the 3rd of June, Bristol. And Tuesday, the 4th of June in Southampton. You can get your tickets at aegpresents.co.uk or via the link in the show notes or our Instagram bios. Really hope we see you there. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. That's what's amazing about women. It's like we are boxers training at high altitude. I think as soon as we start consciously getting behind each other, then I think the world will start to rapidly change in a way that I think will be quite relieving to men. Hello and welcome back to the Should I Delete That podcast. I'm Em Clarkson. And I'm Alex Light. And I am in, I'm in Madrid. Oh. I'm thriving. I'm in rainy, rainy Madrid. I am so I happier. jealous. I would, oh my God, I love Madrid so much. Yeah. Oh my God, Madrid's so nice. Like, I feel very, I'm here for my friend's wedding. Oh, so good. Yeah, I'm here for their wedding, which is gorgeous. It's today. Today's the wedding. Um, oh. And yeah, it's in a few hours. So but I'm having a lovely time. Like first time, first time I want to play with a baby. Yeah. How um, was it? First time abroad. It was good. Um, it was good. I mean, I was I was not calm in the runner. Yeah. Because like, I was just like, I know how everybody talks about babies on planes. So I was apprehensive, to say the least. But she was amazing. She slept the whole beginning bit. And then at the end, she woke up on cracking form until we started going down. And then her little ears oh. hurt. So then she was just crying oh. in pain. And there's nothing you can do. You know what I mean? Like, I was trying to feed her. But... She's in pain um, and I, I, no one threw anything at me or cursed. <laughs> so that was okay. And it didn't last for long. And then we got to the, you know, the bottom, got to the ground and it was fine. Everything was fine. Oh, and then she did a huge shit when the, um, when the seatbelt sign was turned on. So there's nothing I could do about it until we got to like passport control. Oh, no. um, so we lost two outfits. We lost two outfits on the, on the day of transit. But oh, God. it was her first international poo <laughs> and... <laughs> She loved it. So, How, where do you change babies on a plane? There's no baby changing on planes because the the the, the toilet on, on a plane is barely big enough for one person to go in. Never mind one person plus a, a baby. I know, I know, I know. So I was very nervous, and on the, the t- I was really talking to her quite. I was like, "Don't it, like, I love you. This is a short Please. flight. Hold it yeah. together." She did not. But by the time she'd done it, it was um, the seatbelt sign was on, and we were landing, so I couldn't do anything and I was like we've got here now we're just gonna I'm just gonna get off this flight and run to the nearest lose in Madrid which was what okay. we did so I haven't had to cross that bridge yet I may well have to on the way back so I will yeah keep I'm intrigued actually I'm kind of fascinated about how it works my friend told me that like before I came she was like yeah she said top tip sit on the window seat so your partner has to go in the middle because um, then if the baby shit she's like well then then he's yeah that's a go. good shout actually so um yeah she said the first time it happened to them um her boyfriend came back like literally like beads of sweat <laughs> like, just 
like a huge queue of people behind him, like so flustered. Because oh so, there's nowhere um, to put the baby in yeah. a toilet, in an airplane toilet. No, I think it's got to go on the floor. Oh, God. But this does beg the question. What about accessible, like, what about accessibility? Like, never occurred to me. I was like, if if a baby can't be changed, then there's no disabled no, loo no. on a plane. I don't know how they get away with that. Oh my god, good point. It doesn't seem that's so. That is so crazy. It seems really unethical. I don't really understand. Like not the baby thing. I mean, that's you know manageable. But like to not have a disabled yeah. loo, I don't understand. I don't like that. Yeah, that would be an, an actual impossibility. But I've seen. I've. I have, I have actually seen um, a reel about that. Have you? Have you seen the the um, woman who's having to her her wheelchair won't fit down the aisle of the airplane so she's having to like go down the aisle on her on her bum and her hands like just pushing herself oh i know it's so i know it's it's awful so bad so bad more accessibility on planes yeah 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 um that's my good my good is that i'm in madrid i made Ugh. it here i have a baby abroad and like I fucking all good love vibes the food, i've eaten a lot of fried oh, food i love the food it's a lot it's it's very it's, fried yeah it is it's so fried yeah, yeah. so much tapas oh love so it. every morning i've woken up with it like coming back on me I'm like, oh. <laughs> like nice it's nice flavors but like what yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah no it's nice i think i'll get used to it um, um but no it's really my nice. good is oh it's a good and it's also a bad but succession finished oh my god it's so good and the the last episode was so good i literally could barely breathe oh my god okay i can't wait to get home so i can watch it oh it's it's un- have you not watched any of it at all no so no because we started rewatching seasons one to three because i was like i want to be fully abreast by the time the fourth season's like fully out yeah. and finished but then watching tv when you've got a baby is not because we do not do bedtime yet like we do not do bath bed parent right. time like we do like a chaotic two hours of an evening okay and it's it's quite hard to watch it so i've been saving it for like god for when she's moved out i suppose <laughs> I, I don't know i've been saving it oh um, fuck it's so good but yeah I'm oh my at, god it's like so is it good, good? Oh, it's, I'm I'm so I, I honestly think it's the best tv that i've ever seen ever ever it's so good and you know what's remarkable about it is i don't know about you but i don't fucking understand a word no. and they're talking about like the trade-offs and the selling nope. and the, but i'm like what nope <laughs> but still not I a clue it. but i put that on instagram and then so many people replied and be like that's kind of the point like they do that on purpose it's like yeah a, it's like it's like a narrative technique or whatever which does make sense because even though i don't understand i'm still absolutely hooked um yeah but the oh the final episode fuck oh my god it's so good i don't know if i just lack the ambition but i think if i were in that family i wouldn't pursue no way like i just you know they all they all want to be the head honcho so much and i'm like what's wrong with you it looks like a horrible job the man is 80 years old and like about to combust from stress like just take a seat have a glass of wine and enjoy and that money. They've got so much money. Like, yeah. do something that yeah. you would and like all just to do. Some, Don't yeah. go on holiday. I just, I, I think I lack the ambition. It's just, it was not for Absolutely me. Absolutely not. No desire. I'm w- no. Don't want that life. <laughs> no, I would just be. I'd be the kid that was just the the eldest one. I'd just be like, no, I'll just, I'll take my money and spend it very badly. O'Connor, yeah, for sure. Have, yeah, he's got the right. Yeah. Mind you, he's, yeah, that, well. He's got the he's a, he's a yeah but he's got the right he idea. Does, he does. And he's just like pays for his wife. I'm gonna buy a yeah. wife. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> love love I'm that. Gonna buy a pretty girl. Um, that's what that's what men do with money, isn't it? Do you have anything <laughs> bad or awkward for me? Yes, 
Yes, Alex, I have something Go very on. bad. Very, Go very on. bad. I, I, I did what you did. What? I hijacked a dead dog story on Wednesday. Oh no. Oh God. So lucky. One of my great, great yeah. friends. So we had these dogs together, right? She had Minnie when they were growing up and I had Dodger, my king, light of my yeah. life. And they were both Labradoodles. And Dodger died last two years ago, Ugh, two years ago when he was 14. And Minnie's just died and she was nearly 16. Like they were the same yeah. age. So when Dodger died and Minnie was still going, I've always been like, oh my God, Minnie's still going. Anyway, I saw Lucky for oh, lunch the yeah. other day and she was like, Minnie's died. Now, I've probably met Minnie like three times, but it's what Minnie represents. Oh, no. <laughs> um, and so she started crying that Minnie had died, and I'm so tired and stressed and hormonal, and I was just like, oh. And then I started crying, and then Lucky was like, why are you crying? And I was like, I'm really sorry. I didn't mean to hijack it. Oh. But we're here now. So then we both just sat there and oh. cried. And it was it was really bad. She's like, fuck you. This is my moment. Yeah, literally, fuck you. It's my my dead dog we cried to, like you you cried when your dog died let me cry when my dog died oh um, yeah oh, I mean God. I get that so sad but I get it now yeah I get it I'm sorry I'm sorry I didn't understand before oh. but if it catches you at the wrong time someone telling you that their dog's dead is just not it's, okay it's like a dagger isn't it to the chest it's like a full yeah. gut punch and you just think is the world not cruel oh, enough no I know that there's to be another dead dog <laughs> Like, surely not. Oh, Jesus. it's brutal. Anyway, okay. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, that's brought me down, it's actually. Brutal. Thanks. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Yeah. But she lived a very happy oh life. Oh my God, she lived like, 16. Super like, that's unbelievable. Yeah, for a full-size Labradoodle, it's literally yeah. unreal. So, Oh my God, if Betty lived to 16, I would be so happy. Betty, uh, Betty will, and so will Boo. They will both live to be 35 at least. Oh my god! There's a um, a dog has just the oldest dog in the world just celebrated his birthday, and I think he's like thirty something. Hang on, fabulous! Yes, he just celebrated his thirty first oh birthday. Fabulous! I had a dream last night that we used to have donkeys when I was a kid, and I had a dream that one of the donkeys had turned into a horse. <laughs> my mum was really excited. She's like, "It's happened!" I was like, "What do you mean it's happened?" She's like, "It's happened!" Like I didn't think this actually happened. I was like, "I swear it doesn't." But then she took me out to see it, and I was like, "That's just a horse. That's not the donkey." And she's like, "No, the donkey's." Anyway, um, anything bad yourself? I or awkward? Well, I have I have an awkward that's a repeat offender. Oh, good. What did you do? <laughs> do you remember at your wedding when I went up to Ashley James's partner Tommy? Right. I've yeah. never met Tommy before, but I see I saw him on Instagram. I knew full well what his name was, obviously. So I went up to him and said, I, I hugged Ashley and then I was looked to him and I said, Hi, I'm Tommy. Right, obviously. <laughs> I'm not. I'm Alex. And I did it again yesterday and I hate myself. <laughs> it was someone in this meeting, like a really important meeting, and I knew that her name was Nicole. Um, but I'd never met her before. So we walked up to each other and I said, hi, I'm Nicole. <laughs> I know. And then I was like, I was like, oh my God, no, I'm Alex. But I know that I all die. It was so awkward. It was so, I was so uncomfortable. I was like, fuck, so get good. me out of here. So good. Hi, I'm Nicole. Why do your brains do that? Fuck my brain. Fuck your brain. <laughs> my awkward yesterday... Right. Okay. So 
we were out for lunch in Madrid at the Italian restaurant perversely because I already had enough of fried tapas. Um, <laughs> and so we went to this lunch and we said to, so the groom is my friend. Like my childhood friend who I've known for ages and ages. And obviously we're in Madrid. Yeah. So we're all kind of like, but it's not a very big city. So we're all kind of like randomly bumping into each other, which is quite, and we're all staying in the same hotels. Anyway, it's quite nice. Um, so his mum is staying in the same hotel, who I know. Yeah. And um, we bumped into her yesterday morning and we were like, we're going out for lunch and she was going to Zara. Anyway, she was like, we said to her, pop in if you want. Like we're just having lunch. If you want to come by for a glass of wine after lunch, we'll be here. So I was like vaguely aware that she was going to be popping into the restaurant at some point. Um, and then we were in the restaurant. We were sitting outside. I was looking after Arlo. I was eating. I was, you know being a social butterfly I was conversing yes. I was doing many things I was wearing yes. many hats and this woman walked in and at the corner of my eye I was like oh it's his mum so I put my hand up and I waved a jovial like <laughs> we're over here this woman waved back I was like that's weird because that's not her and I looked again and she was still waving my arm was still up I looked behind me <laughs> and there was her friends oh, no. oh, <laughs> with a big God. wave and I thought I had that like stomach plummeting moment where I was like I have oh, no. fucked up but I think I've got away with it I had not um because <laughs> Alex was looking at me like oh no he was oh, like, oh no, no. Fuck. <laughs> this is really bad. I was like, shut up. He was like, no, it's really, really embarrassing. I've got the ick for you. And I was like, <laughs> fuck off. It's fine. He was like, it's not fine. And then he was telling Tom who we were having lunch with. And he was like, look at her with her little hand up. What a loser. So cringe there is just nothing more embarrassing in the world than in waving world. at someone who is not waving at you shame on you shame 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 anything bad um, for me my bad oh my bad is that i'm having a a bad hairstyling moment right okay since i started using nioxin my hair has improved so much like even you've you've said so like it's so much yeah. thicker i mean even me like I, i'm so forthcoming <laughs> with compliments i know i don't know why i said it like that <laughs> but it's so much thicker and better and just like alive again and i think when it was like pre-nioxin i just i was kind of like resigned with my hair i was just like mm. i'm not going to do much with it because it's just like it, it kind of just is what it is, and I've 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 not really got much like pajamas. It sounds awful, but yeah, I just I just I I was just resigned. What's the point? I hear you exactly. What's the point? I just kind of you accepted that turd. it was just it is what it <laughs> I is. Exactly. That, <laughs> <laughs> and then nioxin came along, right? So I've had this great improvement. So I'm like, oh my god, I'm gonna style my hair. I'm gonna try new things. I'm gonna like look at tiktok hairstyles and try them and it's just absolute shit and it's just make, making me making me very mad and frustrated because no matter what i do to it it's just not good because i've realized that okay yes my hair is so much better and thicker but it's still like what the hair itself brag. is so I'm, fine i've realized my hair is just it's it's so thick and and lustrous <laughs> l- 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 i just i i can't ta- it i can't tame it it's just too good it's no, unmanageable. No, it's like the hair itself is still so fine. I literally, my hair you're strands talking, are 100% see-through. You're talking to the right person. I have very fine hair. I just have a lot of it. 
I can help. I okay, can but help I, I have fine, very fine hair, but not that much of it. Like I have more, more, more than, than I you used had. to, but yeah. I don't have, I don't have a lot of it. I'll send you a photo <laughs> of a thickening spray. I put it on Instagram the other day. I bought a thickening spray because a hairdresser told me to. And I yeah. put it in when I'm blow drying it and my hair just looks so much thicker. I don't know oh. how it works. Okay. I don't, I don't nice. understand, but I bought it and it definitely yep. seems to work. So That'll do. I'll send you that. Okay. So yeah, that's, I'm, I'm, that's where I'm at. The only thing I can do is put it in a pony, which is really cool actually, because if you like, okay, look how thick it that pony looks- is. Yes, no, it looks... For me, you, you, for me. Yeah. Because I have I have never worn my hair in a ponytail since I was a teenager because I was embarrassed that it was too thin, like the pony was too thin. And I remember my ex-boyfriend, I put my hair in a plait and my ex-boyfriend um, pointed at it and was like, where's the other one? And he wasn't joking, he was serious. He just thought like, <laughs> I know. So I've always put it in a bun because I've thought that that's like, that, that makes it look more like... You know, voluminous. Voluminous? Is that the word? Not that. Vol- vol- no, voluminous. 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 <laughs> um, but now I'm wearing it in a pony, so that's quite cool. But anyway, yeah, that's my bad. Yeah. I know, it's just I annoying. It. It's just like, I just find it hard. To st- I'm not good at styling hair. I'm really not. I can't do it. I hate do it. Do this. I tie my hair up and then I put the ponytail into a plait and it always makes yeah, that's me look like cute. even more hair. Because oh, that's quite cute. My, that, my hair actually. looks quite fine sometimes. if it Because I never wash my hair, as you know. So by the last bit, it all looks all wispy and fine at the bottom. So I always put it in a plait and then it looks thicker in a ponytail. Oh, because cool. during my pregnancy, my hair, when my iron was so shit, my hair got so, so yeah. thin. Yeah, just so shit. And I lost so much. And it's coming back, thank God. I walked down the stairs the other day and Alex was like, your hair? I was like, I know. Nothing's different <laughs> apart from the fact that I, just, I think I'm not like borderline infusion level of iron deficiency. Yeah. Um, so like we're celebrating the bare minimum on my side, yeah. Okay. Oh, I think okay. it looks cute. Yeah, okay, yeah. I like that. Okay, nice. Well, there you go. Okay, now, there we go. this episode, can I just say, since we interviewed her, I have talked to everybody about it. Right. Last night, I saw a girl I haven't seen in 10 years because I'm at like a school friend's wedding. And I sat next to her and she was like, she, she, she's an amazing human. And she sat and she was like, she, she's a baller, like a real career woman. And she's like traveled the world. She was like living in Hong Kong and now she's in Amsterdam. She's like business bitch, right? And Love. she was like, how is it having a baby? And I was just like, great. But I tell you what. And I talked to her about <laughs> this interview and about like the pressure on women and how the system is rigged and like the... I, I just found it so interesting and I haven't been able to stop thinking about how she talks about sloth and this like the pressure on women that we just can't be lazy and like I can't stop thinking about it like since then I've talked I've chewed Alex's ear off talking about it I've talked to like literally people I've not seen in years I think she was up more like broadly asking like does the baby smile yet and I'm like I tell you what's nuts (laughs) like working mothers (laughs) my god Um, yeah so we had Elise Lewin on do you know what I feel like we've dug into a lot of stuff before and kind of like on the surface of a lot of the stuff that we talked about like with Jamila Jamil or episode with Jamila Jamil which is really good um if anyone wants to go back but that was like I feel like there we really we <clears throat> we talked about how we like build women up to tear them down but I've never really had a handle on like why we do that and like where the like what the motivation is there and we really talked about that with Elise and she's yeah she, she's 
she's got this book all about how women are culturally programmed and like specifically culturally programmed to be good and how that manifests and plays out and causes harm in our actual daily lives it was so fucking good so good it was so good i have not stopped thinking about it and talking about it and i can't wait for you guys all to listen to it as well so without further ado we will shut the fuck up and we can crack on enjoy the interview prepare to have your minds blown yes oh elise hi and welcome to the podcast um, we really appreciate you being here with us today and we are excited to talk to you about your new book which i have on hand at the moment so the title of your book is on our best behavior the price women pay to be good so this pressure on women to be good and to act good and to behave good is something that em and i touch on a lot in this podcast but we're excited to really explore it with you um you know how we as women are culturally programmed and yeah we're excited to dive deep into the subject that's actually still fairly new ground for a lot of women right um and i imagine a lot of people a lot of women listening to this podcast as well it's going to be new territory for them so let's start with the title because i'm i'm interested that's what caught my eye when your agent reached out to us is the title can you explain it on our best behavior the price women pay to be good can you explain this title for us yeah so i think that everything that i write about is something there's a lot of personal memoir but it's all so universal. That's been the reception so far to the book is women feeling like, oh my God, you're giving a name to the voices that I thought were only in my head. And I started the book because as a high achieving person, perfectionist, I hit a wall when I was about 40, maybe 39, where I felt like I'd spent my whole life trying to achieve and be quote unquote good enough uh, thin enough, smart enough, successful enough, a good enough mother, et cetera, on and on. And I felt completely hounded and chased by these voices, these internal critical voices. And I had sort of an aha moment after a therapy session, as one does, um, and where I re- realized that these voices weren't mine. They weren't certainly weren't coming from my husband. They weren't coming from my parents. Um, They were cultural, these cultural forces that were acting on me um, and sort of beating me up, honestly, this, this just making me feel like I was going to die. And I started to think about this idea of goodness in women this good girl mentality, how we're sort of programmed for obedience and compliance and niceness and where that starts and where it comes from. And I could recognize it in sort of different parts of culture. So um, I'm a, a big reader, read a lot. And so it's like, I've read books about women and their bodies and I've read books about women and their anger. And, and I could sense some sort of system of goodness, um, some way that it's passed down to us. And I was trying to just find it. What does it look like? Um, because it's outside of us. It's not in us. And I arrived at essentially a checklist that I then sort of had a, I looked at and startled because I realized that it actually aligns with the seven deadly sins. 
and I'm not a religious person. I wasn't raised within a religious household, but, and I'll remind everyone of what they are, sloth, pride, envy, greed, gluttony, lust, anger. And I had sort of this like chilling sensation on my spine as I looked at this list and realized, oh my God, these are these are the cultural values of goodness that mm-hmm. are passed down to women and circumscribe our lives. These aren't religious edicts. And then I actually, when I started to research the book and started getting into it, I was like, oh, these are even Bible fanfic. They weren't in the Bible. They came out of the Egyptian desert. Um, so, uh, that's where I sort of started was, oh my God, this is a system of oppression. Ultimately, this is the moral arm of patriarchy, which is such a like, also one of those words that's like a boogeyman, you know, where I'm like, I don't even know what that means. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I also needed to understand patriarchy as a system with the morality, the moralizing around goodness as it's as one of its arms and how it continues to drive us sort of like a marionette, even though it's hard to figure out sort of who is driving it. It's so baked into who we are that it's hard to find. It's hard to point a finger anywhere, really. It's so interesting listening about the seven deadly sins because I'm not religious either. I did not grow up in a religious household. I know I have actually married somebody very religious. So I feel like I'm learning late, but I, I, I always thought about the seven deadly sins in the context of Pandora's box, and that was the only. And I guess that that's mythology, isn't it? And it's actually as you were speaking there, I just had this like moment where I was like, oh my god! Like if I imagine any of those, I know so many prideful men, greedy men, lustful men, and they're kind of that's like that's kind of what it epit like epitomizes like being a man having all of these things this all happened while you're speaking it's like but it was pandora's it's like pandora's shame like pandora's badness it it was these it does feel like these sins are a woman's sins much more and i know the bible teaches like men not to cover their neighbor's shit or whatever but like i know you know it does teach morality in that context but it is interesting when you think of sin in the bible and in mythology here with Pandora, it's all women. It's Eve that sinned. It's Pandora's box. There's a, a a complete desecration of the feminine. And I don't know how much you want to get into the history. We can certainly go there. But it's interesting, like even the sort of edict to not covet your neighbor's house, donkey or wife. So women also <laughs> present as property. House, donkey or wife. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Again, not I'm not a Bible scholar, but but yes, this stuff and we can sort of this is the thing we can say, Oh, I don't believe in any of that. You know, I don't subscribe to any of that, but this is what I think we're starting to understand more about culture in the last, you know, decade, right? There are systems of oppression that run our lives that are baked in from the beginning and that are still present. We understand this with systemic racism. You don't have to be racist in order for systemic racism to impact your life positively and negatively. Um, And similarly for women, this is sort of an ancient toxic story about who we are that's in all of our literature. It it shows up in all the fairy tales too. I mean, Snow White is a story in many ways. It's a parable about the seven deadly sins. They're all present. Um, That's also obviously 
uh, parable about women and envy um, and pride. They're just, it, once you start see, I seeing it, you're like, holy shit, this is everywhere. And this is in all the books I grew up in. This is, but because it's been so invisible to us, it's kind of a funny book because in some ways it's so obvious and yet at the same time, completely invisible. And then when you start pulling on it, you start seeing it everywhere. The way women are conditioned around smallness and morality around what they're eating and have they been good or bad? Um, certainly with, with sexuality and sexual appetite and good women, you know, are self-preserving and modest, et cetera. And as you said, these things do not, do not corral the lives of men at all. Men are programmed to pursue power. Women are programmed to pursue goodness. There's nothing worse than being called a bad woman. And there's nothing worse than being considered a weak man in our culture as it is today. For you, which having explored all of these deadly sins, which do you, which one do you think is the most damaging to women and to us as a community? Which do you think is that yeah, it is the most toxic? So I think that some are more toxic on a personal level, like gluttony um, and sloth. But on a community level, the one that I think we have to collectively address is envy and then how it crashes into pride. Because yeah. when I think about, here's the amazing research about women, which won't surprise you. And it's why, understandably, I have two boys. I'm a mom to two boys. Um, why everyone is concerned about boys and men, both in terms of deaths of despair and suicidal ideation, as well as the fact that women are just crushing men at school. But we have been for a century. Okay. It's not a new thing, you know, and I, I write about this anthropologist, Ashley Montague, who sort of redefined, we, we always hear about hunter gatherers and he's like, it's really gatherer hunters because most people forage for the vast majority of their food, men and women, et cetera. There's like a whole telling about our prehistory. That's like such a story made by men. That's a whole nother podcast probably. Um, but anyway, <laughs> Ashley Montague wrote this book in the fifties. He wrote in a, he wrote a story that I guess went viral. If you could in the 1950s called the natural superiority of women. And it's about how we're biologically more durable. We live longer. Um, we outperform boys on most intelligence tests. We're much better with language, et cetera. So this is, these are just the realities. Then you sort of look at where we are in the world and it's like, what's happening? Why is there this gap? Particularly because, yeah. you know, I love men. I'm married to like a wonderful feminist man. I've had incredible male bosses who have been some of the kindest um, men that I've encountered. Obviously there's rampant misogyny. There are people like Harvey Weinstein. There's, there's a lot of pernicious men. I'm not suggesting that they're not, but it's not like you can sort of look around and be like, it's you and it's you and like, you're keeping me down. And, you know, I think that's yeah. part of the sort of cognitive dissonance that we're all experiencing. And you look at the social science research and women are as hard on other women as men, if not harder. 
Okay. And there are so many reasons for this. I'd throw greed and sort of these ideas of scarcity in this pile too, with envy and pride. But I think that what's happened is that, so envy is, is the gateway to the other sins. And I was speaking to the psychotherapist, Lori Gottlieb years ago, and she said something that sort of became the beginning of this book too, which was envy. I always tell my clients to pay attention to their envy because it shows them what they want. Mm -hmm. And I, that just like sat in my mind and I asked her about it. I asked her if it was gendered and she said she didn't have data, but probably because women are much more uncomfortable about feelings that we perceive as shameful or bad. We're much more Mm -hmm. suppressive and repressive. And so what I believe is that because women are conditioned to believe that they should subjugate all of their wants to other people's needs. Anything left over, it's like, fine, but make sure everyone else's needs are covered. We don't have great models for what it looks like to go after what you want. And so we don't, we don't have a lot of experience exploring that. And we don't have a lot of experience celebrating that and talking about it with each other. And so when I hear women on women, sort of what we would perceive in our culture as sort of this like terrible idea of like women being hard on other women. I think Mm -hmm. that it comes from undiagnosed envy of, I would never allow myself to do that. Mm -hmm. Who does she think she is? I don't Mm -hmm. like her. Like whatever she is doing is pushing on a dream that you have for yourself. And I think if anyone is listening and they start actually doing this process with themselves, why does that mama drop off drive me crazy? Why do I find this woman in the public eye so annoying? You'll find that different people bother different people. Mm-hmm. It's not there. are, And I want to sort of caveat here. There are some women in the States, at least on the public stage who are um, pushing forward hateful legislation who are like really I don't like them and I don't envy them. Okay. I don't like what they're doing and I don't, there's nothing in them that I want for myself, but Mm -hmm. on sort of the more personal level and, and the cultural level, I think that the women who bother us in sort of that, like, I don't know, I just don't like her. She rubs me the wrong way are full of information. Mm -hmm. And so instead of projecting, it's like, they make you feel uncomfortable. So you take that bad feeling and you project it onto them instead allowing it to sort of come up and to say, Oh, I'm like envious of the fact that she is so forthright and is so clear in the way that she speaks. Oh, I'm envious that she has such a huge career and uh, you know, or whatever it is, everyone's going to have their own list. That's what's also really Mm -hmm. beautiful. Um, So I think that collectively we have to start having these conversations with each other and just practicing. And what you'll notice is it comes up. You're like, oh, that doesn't feel so bad. What feels worse is the projection of it, the shaming of someone else. That doesn't feel good. Why do you think we don't admit to feeling envious? Is it that we feel a sense of shame that we we're is it that we feel embarrassed that we haven't got what they've got or do you think it's that we feel embarrassed for feeling jealous and we don't want to admit to that 
I think it's more the latter. I think it's completely unconscious. I don't think that we're like, I yeah. feel envious, therefore I'm going to suppress it. I think that we just, it comes up. We, we don't recognize what it is. We just recognize it as irritation and discomfort. Yeah. And, and then we are so programmed to not feel bad. It's like, we have to get this badness out of us. Right. And so we just project yeah, it. Cause we're, we're actually, we're not just harming other women when we're projecting and when we're hard on them because they are showing us something that we perceive we don't have or we want to have but we're actually doing a a disservice to ourselves as well right because we're not exploring the part of us that is that is lacking or that is saying like I, I want something else I need something else but I do I what I do find so interesting is that like of those of all those sins, like to me, envy is the most shameful. I don't know about you, Em, if that feels true to you as well. But envy, like it feels painful to admit to being envious, particularly of other women. It's so strange. It's, yeah. I actually said this to my friend this morning because, I mean, this couldn't have come at a better time for me, like this whole interview, because I'm feeling very... Like I'm currently having to assert myself in a business capacity, which is challenging every ounce of my people pleasing <laughs> existence. I'm like, ah, this is awful. Like it's so bad. Anyways, so this has come at a really good time. But I literally this morning was talking to my friend and I've had a lot of coaching for context. Like I've really done a lot of work on like my thoughts and what, what feelings my thoughts evoke. And I was talking to my friend this morning because I've just had a baby. You just saw her. And I went back to work really soon and I don't regret it. And I've made my decision and I'm, and I'm here. But my friend had a baby at the same time. And I was saying to my other friend this morning, I was like, I'm so jealous. Like I'm so jealous of her right now. And then I was sitting there and I was like, and I know it's the most pointless emotion and it's the most stupid emotion because because of all these different reasons but I just can't help it and then it felt really good to say it and then I really sat with it and I just I went through this whole thing and I was like no actually I don't think I am anymore but it was like it was one of the first times in my adult life I remember saying out loud like I'm jealous and it's like it's eating me up because when you then peel all that back I'm like no it's my fault it's like it's not my fault but I'm I got me here it's got nothing to do with my friend that's doing something different like I it's my decisions that led me here but it just felt really nice to say it out loud. And then I actually realised I wasn't that jealous and I really sat with it because it's the grass is greener and then is it really greener? And no. But anyway, I digress. I just, it was just, you're right, Al. Like, it just feels good to say it. it and then you can process it. It's like there, yeah. you can look at it. You can be like, okay, do I want that more than I want this? I don't know. I wish I could have both. That's it. You want yeah. both. <laughs> yeah. I wanted both. I, that's, I was sitting there and I was like, I don't, I want what she has and I want what I have. I want both things. And then it's like, and then it's another sin. Cause then I was like, greedy, I'm greedy. I want it all. And and if I was one thing I know for sure is that women can't have it all. I can't work a hundred percent effectively and be a mum a hundred percent effectively at the same time. Well, maybe I can, I don't know, but it feels like I can't. Now you've gotten into the chapter on sloth, which is about, too, this idea that, and this is what I see a lot of moms, I do this myself, mm -hmm. which is, that's a chapter that's probably the, the most about parenting, but I think anyone can relate to this idea as women that we'll never do enough on in any sphere of our life, right? There's always more to be done. And so what I see happening, too, with a lot of women, and again, we sort of it's also cultural. So we sort of do this unintentionally to each other, but women who work outside of the house, then out of grief and guilt, 
feel like they need to match that level of exertion and output at home Mm -hmm. rather than saying, okay, here's my pie right now. This gets more, this gets a little less. Sorry, kids. Like I'll be more present next month. It's this like, Oh, I did this extra project and I, I spent all day Saturday um, working. Therefore I need to spend all day Sunday in like a hands-on parenting frenzy right? Like this need for balance that we sort of proclaim the way that it shows up in our lives is a ratcheting up of um, energy and effort. So there's this like balance counterbalance and it just goes up and up and up in a way that becomes quite staggering. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, it's so driven by, I just saw I'm assuming your partner carrying your baby. So that's great. But what happens to a lot of women too, is that we get, we we're programmed with this idea of like what a good mother looks like. And so then we sort of bar anyone from interfering with our pursuit of that goal, not recognizing like that's, those are trade-offs. Right. Um, So for example, I do this all the time where no one is telling me, like uh, for launch week, I did an event. I live in Los Angeles. So it's a six hour flight. I went the week before for an event. I flew home at 1030 at night. So I landed at 230 in the morning. So I could go to one of my kids parent teacher conferences in person, even though I could have definitely shown up on zoom and no one would have judged me. And then I was home for that day, half of the next day. And then I flew back to New York because of my own anxiety about my mothering nobody my husband was like this is insane what are you doing like the teachers weren't demanding that I show up in person this was all me um but that's how this stuff this is how this runs us if that makes sense it's like it's not an exterior edict it's not someone saying if you loved your son you would you know fly home and then fly back why do me. you think women like if we get down to the absolute core of it like why do women feel those pressures that men typically generally wouldn't feel that pressure that you felt to you know fly in out back again just to get everything done you know where does it where does it come from do you think because I think I read that you you know your parents were very um liberal and feminist and your partner's feminist yeah, you feel this, you know, so where does it, where does it, where does it come from? Honestly, it's, it's, it's baked into everything. It's, uh, it starts at the beginning of patriarchy, which isn't that old compared to how old we are as humans. Mm -hmm. Um, And it started with the subjugation. Patriarchy was really built on the backs of the subjugation of women and children. Um, and this is, uh, I mean, it's kind of far away, but it's it's like eight eight thousand years. But we've been around for a really long time. And before that, we lived in these affiliative partnership style uh, ways. There was no, there was no subjugation. Like we did life together. There was, you know, and the, the pre our prehistory is fascinating, and there are people who are far more versed on it than I am, but women, as we sort of were brought under control, we became property. This is how people built wealth, built families. 
And this, the moralizing part of it, originally sort of an early patriarchy, it was just Hammurabi's code. It was an eye for an eye. It was if a woman cheats on her husband, let her be like stoned to death and drowned. If a man cheats on his wife, let him be, um, pay a fine. Um, it's just at, from the beginning, this like incredible misogyny built into the legal mm-hmm. code. And certainly it's become more equitable even in our lifetimes, but there is this adjacency to power that women have. Um, and we, I think, live in constant fear of being cast out, excluded. And again, like I think about sort of even in the mm-hmm. last five, 10 years, the worst thing that you can say about a woman is reputational damage. It's like, she's bad. She's a bad person. She's a bad mother. Mm-hmm. She's a bitch, whatever it is. She's an, an ambitious, aggressive whore, you know, whereas men, it's like, they have to literally, I mean, they can assault someone and still be in power. We, we love them for it. Yeah, it's pretty insane, like what a man has to do to be cast out, mm-hmm. whereas all you have to do about a woman, you know, a man can commit horrible, egregious crimes and we're still willing to sort of take them back. And then you watch women sort of exiting stage right. This is the chapter on pride, which is about what we do to women who dare to be seen. And it's about that's the chapter where I write about famous women. And we can say sort of like watching, you know, there's a, there's a playbook for women in Mm -hmm. our culture where we sort of celebrate them on the upswing. And then they hit a certain point in culture where we just viciously tear them down and celebrate their demise. And then maybe we're sort of like, we kind of want them to have a comeback. And then we maybe feel bad if they die, you know, like Amy Winehouse Mm -hmm. or, Billie Holiday or Princess Mm -hmm. Diana, but Mm -hmm. we are ruthless men and women um, in terms of hounding women who dare to be seen, who dare to use their gifts Mm -hmm. in the world. Is it because it's easier? Like I, and I I don't want to go into it, but I do find it fascinating. A man in in my life did something bad before Christmas and at the end of last year did something that did something publicly you know, reputationally bad and I was astounded it had nothing to do with me nothing to do with me and I was so shocked by the huge like ma- like bigger than I could ever have imagined uh wave of shit that came my way from people angry with me for allowing him to do it or say it or not I, fuck knows why you know they just it, like and I felt at the time it was this first time when I realized I was like is it because or I questioned is it because we're too scared to go for men is it because it's and a lot of these comments most of these comments came from women telling me that I had to make him do better and I was like why are you holding me to a standard higher than you're holding him and I wonder if you know if, if there is any research or any speculative thought on is it be- on why we do this to women? Is it because they're more accessible to us? Is it because it's easier for us to punish other women or call on them to do things? Like why why do we feel that we can do this to women in a way that we can't do it to men? 
No, it's a great question. And I think that there's sort of two things at play. So I think on a cultural, so yes, I think that uh, women are excellent punching bags. Misogyny is still completely acceptable. We don't really fear reprisal from women in part because women are like too, too quote unquote good to really, to really react, if that makes sense. But I think that there's a bigger cultural note that you hit. And I write about this in Lust, which is this idea that men and boys are just not really capable of being responsible for themselves or their actions. And it is the job of girls and women to be babysitters to their rapacious male desire. So we can't possibly hold them accountable for what they do because they're boys and they're men and they're not capable of controlling Mm -hmm. themselves. And so we put this, there's this insistence that girls, girls should really be responsible for anything that a boy does, anything, certainly anything that he does to her. And we see this throughout, you know, in the US at least, Mm -hmm. it's like, I think of a thousand sexual assaults that are reported, only 25 ever go to trial because Mm -hmm. there's just no way to hold these boys and men responsible. And the reputational harm to the woman, this like insistence that she put herself into the situation. What was she wearing? Had she been drinking? How many sexual partners has she had? Do we believe her? Even though to, to actually admit that something, a sexual transgression has happened to you is the most humiliating, excruciating thing to have to do. We mm-hmm. insist that these women are just lying. And then we put on them too, that they're responsible for ruining this man's life. We should be able to get over this, but like he won't get over the reputational harm or having to go to prison. So like you should really take that into account before you. And why does that come up so much? Like that that still blows my mind now. And I hear it almost more from women. Uh, it drives me mad. There was something, I was having a conversation the other day and someone said, she, she oh, he's been, he's been, he's been accused of sexual assault. And you can, it's like an unspoken thing. You can hear it now. Maybe older women who are thinking she's lying. Like it, it feels so, it feels so there. Like so, t- despite the fact that all the statistics show that it, that's not the case. Why is that so e- easy for us to, 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 to perpetuate that? Because they're cultural standards. So to go against it, to go against any of this and demand and require better requires mm-hmm. a, a rewiring. But I think first we have to see it. And I don't I don't think that we've been particularly conscious of this or conscious of it as a system of misogyny. And I think that there are it's just it's just runs us, if that makes sense. It's not, it's just it's imperceptible to how we mm-hmm. move throughout the world. And so part of it. And my hope with the book is that women can say, oh, my God, I recognize these all as isolated events. I've never thought of this as a system. And now I can start to talk about this with my friends, sisters, daughters, mothers, and we can consciously push against it because that's what that's what's amazing about women. It's like we are boxers training at high altitude. 
like watch out when we actually sort of can get behind each other mm-hmm. and start to rail against these systems of scarcity that would have us believe that really only one woman is ever going to be on the executive team and we'll never have a female president in the United States, for example, like all of this, this scarcity that we see in our companies and our government and our culture, I think as soon as we start consciously getting behind each other, recognizing our envy, recognizing that instinct to sort of police and school and scold other women and stop it, then I think the world will start to rapidly change in a way that I think will be quite relieving to men. The book isn't sort of a takedown of men. I'm worried about men. I think patriarchy is terrible for men. I think it's hard to see that in a in our culture that sort of prioritizes and vener- venerates power and money, et cetera. I get that those are incredibly intoxicating for our culture. But like, I wouldn't want to be an oppressive, dominant person. Mm-hmm. I think that the sort of psychic toll of this is devastating. And mm-hmm. so, I don't know. I think I think part of it is also saying actually boys and men you are completely capable. There are a lot of boys and men who don't rape women. You mm-hmm. are completely capable of controlling your impulses and your appetites. Women would know. We've been doing it for millennia. Mm-hmm. Um and I don't know. I, I, but I, I feel for you because the standard, and this is the other thing that drives me crazy is I'm sure you heard this too, when people were sort of coming after you for the actions of a man, it's this, like, I expect more from you. I, I'm hard on women because I expect more from women. I'm disappointed. I love you. I loved you, but like, I can't love you anymore. And it's like, Jesus Christ, I didn't ask you to fucking love me. But also, this is mad that it's like, you you can love me in one dimension. You can only love me in this context. And then the second I put a foot wrong, and like, Al, you and I have talked about this so much, like doing the job that we do, it's like we could spend 10 years doing work that we perceive to be really good and work that we that we're really proud of and you take one foot wrong and it's like see ya <laughs> bye it's it's mad and people revel in it yeah and that and if you don't mind jumping back to what we were talking about before with the phenomenon that we all witness of women being built up to then being to then be taught you know torn down and we all seem to really take this collective pleasure in the, you know this woman's demise do you think that do you think the first part of that is intentional the build up in order to tear down or do you think it's just um or do you think it's just that there is there is nothing it, it's all fairly innocuous until we perceive this woman to be higher than us or does envy kick in and this woman has something then that you know that we we want we don't have and that's where the tearing down part comes in how how do you sort of how do you perceive all of that I don't think it's premeditated and I, I I don't think it's conscious I think it's pride then it it hits that sort of like who does she think she is she's too big for her britches 
it it yeah. hits our envy it we like we sort of like this idea of um it hits our scarcity triggers of like mm. if she has that i can't possibly have that too and then i think that there's sort of a certain i mean this might be too too far out too but when we think about i think we're sort of at the very beginning of understanding intergenerational trauma right and sort of epigenetics of it and the way that we pass these things on we're certainly having a massive reckoning in the united states right about um racism and in the not too distant past i know germany is going to be in it and processing the holocaust mm -hmm. for centuries probably although they've done some good work there but um it wasn't that long ago that there was a gender side primarily across europe so the witch craze went on for two centuries after the inquisition in the states we know about sort of the salem witch trials and i think it was 25 or 30 people primarily women who were killed but in europe it was they, they don't quite know. They're still trying to piece it together. About 80,000 to 100,000 primarily women wow. were hunted, burned at the stake. And this was a wow. secular activity. They followed the playbook of the Inquisition, but this was this was run by government, not the church. And the primary targets were women and primarily older women, crones, women who had maybe were widows, had property. Um, that the, that they would then repossess. And uh, other targets were sort of midwives, healers, um, sort of like an entire, in some ways, like you could almost call it like an indigenous culture of wisdom traditions and healing traditions. And the way that they, they were horrific. And women were forced to turn on each other, turn in their daughters, turn in their mothers in an act of self-preservation. So I also feel like when we see stuff like this, sort of this frenzied mob, it's kicking up. I think we have a lot of unprocessed trauma. There's no other, like it is unfathomable to think about a culture turning on its own and committing gender side for 200 years. It's actually just like wild when you think about it. Yeah. To be a woman is to be suspect. Um even the word gossip, the etymology of gossip is actually God parent, because one of the one of the things that was sort of uh, that people were suspicious became suspicious of was women who would gather together and talk. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think that there's also some of that, some residual. I don't know. Like I see stuff like that too, and it feels like why this doesn't feel actually like who we are it's mm. like something that takes us over um but it's a warning what we do to women and and people can feel schadenfreude they can feel which is harm plus joy they can have sort of that like delicious mm. feeling of like she got what she deserved and she's back in her place like sort of just below me but this mm. is what we do to women and it affects all of us it doesn't just affect Amy Winehouse. It affects every girl and every woman who is watching. Mm -hmm. um, and same with, you know, in, in the U.S., sort of the widespread cancellation of women, a lot of women in media, 
uh, female founders of companies, just like the joy that people had in destroying them. And the way, what I would also say too about women is that because of this fear of badness, a lot of us lack durability for that sort of criticism. So it's like you say a woman is, you know, a bad manager was toxic in some way. And I just watched them all just like exit stage left, (laughs) never to be seen again. There was no sort of like a man, so many men endured. And the, the implications for them were so much worse. And it was sort of this, I don't care. I'll just keep going. That's really interesting. Like that's just really clicked something in me. Do you think that with that in mind, we genuinely aren't as good at taking criticism as men? Like, no, I don't think we're as good. I think it is it is so much more damaging to women, that reputational damage. It is like devastating, mm-hmm. devastating. Whereas men, you know, I write about the research of this woman, Carol Gilligan, who... Um, therapist who did a lot of pioneering research in the development of moral codes of women, of girls and boys. She wrote this book called In a Different Voice. And men, boys, they want to be in the world and girls want to be of service to the world. And then she has this incredible sentence about how what she and Whitney studying boys and girls and their formation, what happens is that the word don't comes to be inserted into voca- into vocabulary for boys and girls. And for boys, it becomes, mm. I don't care. And for girls, it becomes, I don't know. And to me, that's our culture. Mm. Women divorce from everything that they do know. And boys divorce from their like caring, sweet, loving mm. hearts. And that's sort of the armor that we put on as we go out into the world. And so I think boys can just, it's like, I don't care. And that is completely acceptable Mm. for boys and men in a way that is just like, what? From a woman? So the system is harming everyone. Yes, all of us, baby boys and young boys. The research suggests that they are more attached, more feeling, more sensitive than girls. And yet we've had this, we've grown up in a culture that insists that like you have to send boys, you have to turn them into men. And the process of turning boys into men is a dehumanizing, a severing them from emotions. Actually, so originally, so the the sins weren't in the Bible. They came out of the Egyptian desert at the same time that the New Testament was being canonized. So it's about roughly the same date. And there were, there were originally eight thoughts. And the eighth was sadness. And then they sort of traveled around the desert as a set. And then in 590, Pope Gregory I turned them into the cardinal vices and assigned them all to Mary Magdalene. And that's when he turned her into a penitent prostitute. And she wore that reputation until 2016. But the eighth, sadness, was dropped from the list. And I wrote about it. Mm -hmm. I included it in the book because I'm convinced that sadness is what, which which he wrote about, Evagrius Ponticus wrote about as having a feminine soul, that that's what's lodged, a fear of sadness is what's lodged in the minds of men. 
and that the primary symptom of cutting boys and men off from their feelings is toxic masculinity. And that wounded boys become wounding men. And you look at our culture and you look at who is causing damage, who in the States at least, who's shooting children. And it's men. It's wounded boys and wounded men. And so I think women have learned how to survive and endure in patriarchy in a way that's quite impressive. But I think it has devastated boys and men. Yeah. We do hear that a lot, isn't it? My mom says it all the time. She's got two girls and a boy. And she says, you know, she she worries. Like she's like, it is, and and it's kind of become a joke. And everyone's like, it is so hard to be a man in this day and age. And obviously, like that does cause like young women. It caught it for a long time. It really caused me to bristle because I'd be like, I think it came up a lot. Like there was a big case here a couple of years ago where a woman went missing and she was turned out a police officer serving metropolitan police officer had murdered her and it caused this huge like massive um conversation here about women's safety and I think like we had that conversation a lot and it made a lot of us women bristle I think because it's like but but men are safe, like men are hurting us. And then there was, and it became this really like gender war because it became with men on one side being like, it's not all men, it's not all men, it's not all police officers, it's whatever. And it didn't help that the Met were saying, oh, well, it's just a couple of bad apples. And we're just like, it's not fucking bad apples. It's a bad barrel. Like it's just, this it's, it's a shit show. The whole thing's a shit show. So it always, it always jars, I think, for a lot of women who are suffering to hear, oh, it's really hard to be a man. But when you hear it like that, and actually when I think about the men that I know, it does break my heart that they can't, they're not allowed to have emotion in the way that women are. And something I find quite like sad, really sad is I don't know, and I don't know, I'm really hoping you're gonna have an answer. Like what happens there? Is this a woman is this women's responsibility to like have we got to dismantle the patriarchy as part of our feminism to enable men to live freer? Or is there going to be something that's going to enable men to access their emotions? Like cu- culturally what's going to happen? Well, this is what what I think mm. is happening. Um so I as mentioned, you know, that with the creation of patriarchy there was a desecration of the feminine and most acutely female. But one of the themes of the book is that there are, we each have masculine and feminine energy and balanced femininity. And we all know women who behave in toxically masculine ways, right? So Mm. balanced, the balanced feminine is nurturance, creativity, and care. The balanced masculine is order, structure, truth. We each have those energies, regardless of gender. They have nothing to do with gender. I'm sure both of you guys are in your masculine a lot. I think a lot of women will be like, oh yeah, a thousand percent. You are directing, you're scheduling, you're figuring out, you're running a team, whatever it is, you're running a business. And then you also know how to be in your feminine, um, receiving, et cetera. I think that men have been, I think women are are 
quite comfortable in both worlds. I think I'm more comfortable in my masculine. Um, and this is different, again, different from gender, different from sexuality. And I think we're starting to understand this with the contemporary trans movement. I think it still seems like a little strange to some people, but men in this, in the desecration of the feminine and the way that they've been cut off from their feelings and their nurturance and care are desperate for balance as well. And so part of the argument of the book is to let the feminine, the feminine must come up in men. We must find balance in each of mm -hmm. us and in the world. And that your ability to run a company has nothing to do with like your genitalia. It has everything to do with sort of your qual the qualities of balanced masculinity and balanced femininity. You have to be able to do both. And so, and I think as we look towards the future, I include this chart from these, uh, this uh, young Ian, Marion Woodman and Eleanor Dixon, and they wrote, made this chart 40 years ago, but it talks about how sort of early prehistory was matriarchal. Mm. We're currently in a patriarchal period and the future is androgynous. And mm. I think that that's, I think as men can let their feminine come up and women feel completely comfortable mm -hmm. in both worlds, we'll start to sort of re, re rebalance because the answer mm -hmm. is like, people will say, oh, it's you know time for a matriarchy. It's like, I don't think we want a dominant oppressive world, even if it's led by women. We want balance, mm -hmm. partnership, affiliation. Mm -hmm. I think it's essential for humans to experience both ideally yeah. in the same day and in the same At least hour. we'd love to wrap up with for the women listening who have abided by all of these unwritten rules that are like you said baked into our culture and our society and and tried their hardest all their lives to be good and who I imagine those women who are possibly grappling with a bit of cognitive dissonance right now <laughs> um as I am a little bit um Firstly, what is on the other side for them? And secondly, what's an, what are some actionable steps to get to the other side and try and shed this, this, you know, this goodness that we've, we've been so conditioned to, to, to be? Well, I think it's personal work and it's also collective work. And I'm so glad you brought that up earlier because part of it is to let this, all of our appetites, desires, wanting human instincts come up mm. and recognize that we've sort of treat ourselves like, you know, lunatics in an asylum. We're so scared of like, what will happen if I eat whatever I want? What will happen if I express my anger? You know, we have this sort of, uh, the way that we treat ourselves is like we're captives, you know, one, one morsel away from like, self-destruction. So I think part of it is like, oh, wow, I let my envy come up. I processed it in a safe place and it didn't kill me. If anything, I feel better. I actually can go and be supportive of my friend without bringing all of my judgment to bear on her, my self-judgment to bear on her, et cetera. So, and then I think that it, what's been really exciting watching the book come into the world is that I lived with it by myself with my editor for years, right? Yeah. And 
now that women are reading it and talking about it, it's been amazing to watch how quickly we can move this stuff and diagnose it um, together. And particularly when you're sort of like, I'm saying these things that feel so shameful and I'm being held by other women who are like, I feel the same way. I thought I was mm. the only one, you know, all of that cultural conversation. I have watched it really start to liberate people where they're like, oh, I can, I can actually let this come up without suppressing it and repressing it in shadow. And it doesn't hurt. And it doesn't hurt anyone. If anything, I just feel so much more comfortable, so much more balanced. Because it's not a book that's like, let's go be greedy and lustful. You know, people who haven't read mm -hmm. it on Instagram are like, the world doesn't need more greed. I'm like, yeah, no shit. I'm not suggesting that like, we continue this like, racking up ecological credit card debt. But women need more money. We need enough. Women are excellent with money. We're more philanthropic. We're better stewards of money. So it doesn't work to sort of say like money is base and gross. Let's just leave it to Jeff Bezos. But that's also really annoying feedback because it's like the world doesn't need to be more greedy. It's like, oh, please. Like there are men on their private jets and private yachts all over the fucking place. Like no one cares. Like they're allowed to be greedy. What the, that person is saying is they don't want more greedy women. I mean, look at Jeff Bezos and his wife or his ex-wife. She's like given away an indescribable amount of money mm. and to incredibly worthy organizations. It's, it's amazing. Women need more money. Women need more money. It also feels like this is going to be really good for like, I don't know, for me personally, listening to you talk, it's like, I, and it's definitely because I just had a kid, but the guilt I feel all the time for, I don't know, prioritizing rest, like is, I mean, I don't, I don't prioritize rest because the guilt is too much, but I like, it feels so if listening to you speak about this work, it's like it, the idea that you can free women of guilt is or that we can free ourselves and we can free each other of guilt. It's like, sounds so exciting. Yes. I mean, it talk about a, a reclaiming of so much of our vital energy mm. that we can actually use with the people we love and with ourselves and out in the Amazing. world. Thank you so much. This has been fascinating. So fascinating to hear you talk. And we encourage everyone to get your book. We're going to put the link in the show notes. Um, and thank you. Thank you so much, Elise, for joining us. And yeah, that was brilliant. Should I delete that is part of the ACAS Creator Network.